There was a researcher who said the only way to resolve this would be to find an entire mummy of a T-Rex. There's no way to resolve Couldn't the Disney conflict. the Jurassic Park experiment? Yeah, and, why can't we just right. do that? I and, know. And clone a dinosaur and see if they got lips? Maybe we should start with Beethoven. We could clone Beethoven. <sighs> Beethoven had lips. We do know that. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by when is the appropriate time to fill up your gas tank survey that I want to know the answer. 30 miles left or less. 30 miles left or less. So is the, is the so light gone on, the warning when, light? Yeah, the light goes on around 60, and I wait until it gets to the point where it no longer tells you how much gas it thinks it has left, which for me is at 30 in my car. Okay, definitely. But I know it's time to get gas. It's definitely wrong answer. Jess? I've had different stages in my life in relation to this outcome. Right now, at this moment in time, I usually get it when I have about a quarter of a tank left because I'm terrified of being stranded with like screaming children in the back. But I've definitely had times where I don't get gas until the light comes on and sometimes a good while after that. So this is a constant debate in my household that was made more transparent by the fact that one of my children asked, when is the appropriate time? Oh, and dear. so then it, it had to get relitigated. The correct answer <laughs> is when you've, when you've hit three quarters of a tank. I mean, you're pushing it at that point, right? So you're down to a quarter. No, no. You're down to three quarters of a tank left. You're pushing it a little bit, but okay, you know, you can wait. But that seems very early to me. I'm, I'm, (laughs) this is the reputation that I have in my household. I, I believe it's at a quarter of a tank. You, You never want to go less than a quarter of a tank left. Whereas other people in my household like to see that, that the light danger, come on. Right. But it's a little bit, it's like a little bit of living on the edge. This I mean, is, that's this right. is part well, of what I hear. curious how far the car will really no, go? No, not see, at all. that's it, right? And maybe at some point you'll have to figure that out. I, I actually read, read somewhere that there there is a reason to do it earlier so that your, your rationale has some support, which is that gas tanks, particularly, I guess, older cars, which had steel tanks, and I, I think they're aluminum now, would get um, rust in them. And so the rust flakes would settle to the bottom and get slurped up as the as the draw the drawing apparatus would go further and further down oh. the tank, and so you can clog up your intake tubing. Okay. This is what I've heard. I have so, no idea so, if this so, is true. So what I'm hearing is I'm right. I just let <laughs> let's conversation that, ended. That is that is way. However, I have not actually run out of gas since I was in high school. I did I did once in when we lived in South Africa and the gas gauge was broken and I just. Did not, could not judge. I don't think I've ever run out of gas. Yeah, it's the only so, time it ever yeah. happened to me. Mm. It's awkward when it happens, but then you have to walk. Well, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health, and I'm joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thanks. Happy to be here. And I am also joined once again by Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jess. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And another reminder, give us a rating on your iTunes or your Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast because we have two new reviews. Two. Two. Wow. So first one says, amusing, informational, and just delightful. Oh, gosh. That's nice. Five stars. I discovered this podcast while I was completing my master's in public health and have continued to listen to it as they never fail to discuss interesting and topical studies. And you are guaranteed a few laughs and chuckles along the way. Great work, everyone. Keep them coming. I highly recommend this podcast. Nice. I can't read the it's. 
says mummy six three nine two zero dollar sign six two two. That's the name of the person. Is that phonetic? Could, could be real. Could be. Could be a bot. I don't know. And then the second one, excellent podcast. A good balance between seriousness and lighthearted moments without ever feeling like an overload of information and not informative at all. I've even included it, meaning it doesn't feel that. No, no, this is good. This is good. I've even included it in the recommended literature for my epidemiology students. I'm not entirely sure they listen to it, but they should if they want to know where I get some of my ideas for exam questions from. Uh So that's so cool. That's very nice. That's awesome. So, anyway, now onto the show. So, today, in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on COVID interventions, a dense study with a lot of information. Then in the second part of the podcast, assuming we have time, given how much there probably is to say about the first one, which is our deep dive, we will talk about the idea of living evidence syntheses and whether or not we think they are going to solve all of research's problems. And then our last segment is our Amazing and Amusing, where we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just find interesting. Okay, so segment one. So the article we're talking about looked at COVID interventions, as I said, was published in The Lancet entitled Assessing COVID-19 Pandemic Policies and Behaviors and Their Economic and Educational Trade-Offs Across the U.S. States from January 1st, 2020 to July 31st, 2022, colon, an observational analysis by first author Thomas Balaki of the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., but I think it's probably also worth noting a large number of the authors were from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Is that what yes, it is? and there was a lot uh, of them. And there was a lot of them. And I bring that up only because much of the data that is used in this comes from IHME. Some headlines on this one. Why the COVID-19 death rate varies dramatically across the U.S. That was from the University of New Orleans Public Radio. When it comes to preventing COVID-19 deaths, how we feel about each other matters. Yahoo News. And then the last one, and I, I chose this one only because it's representative of something, which is, is Mountain West State's COVID-19 death rates stand out in new analysis. That's from KPCW. That is from a news station in the West. And I point that one out because there were a lot of these headlines from different news outlets across the country that picked out their state, their so state awesome. from this analysis. Sure. and you know, sort of use this as like the scoreboard. What about the state of mind? That was not in there. And there is no radio station that I know of. My two favorite states. Yeah. And then there's Rhode Island. And then, which is an island. Right. It's not an island. Why is it called Rhode Island if it's not an island? It's near Greece. Jess, can you walk us through this very complicated study? Oh my goodness. I'm I'm so glad that you're doing this, Jessica. (laughs) Can I just say, I started reading this today and I'm like, I only have three hours until this podcast and this is going to take three hours to try to understand this piece. I was glad that you did the Conquering Review last time, which was was long. Well, I just said they analyzed a bunch of studies and they came up with some results that we disagreed with. So it was pretty pretty light. Well, I I would say... I have two pages of notes on this study, and so I've asked Matt to just give me the, like, let's get it over uh-huh. with hand wrap signal. Wrap well, we're going to wrap it up. So he'll do that. But this, the question is almost like what was not analyzed in this study <laughs> as it relates to COVID. This was a paper that I'll just note up front had 58 co-authors. So there were many, many people, and they came from many institutions who were involved in some aspect of the data gathering or data analysis. And we've spoken as a group about what constitutes co-authorship. Mm-hmm. But this is this is a this is a, a big big group. So kind of even just reflecting the huge lift that this paper was. Yep. I'm just going to read the first sentence of the abstract because 
it's great in that it defines the core question that they're asking in this paper. The USA struggled in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, but not all states struggled equally. Yep. And they're asking why. Why is that the case? The why? And they're trying to identify factors that led to this cross-state variation in COVID infection and mortality rates. And the authors note up front that some states in the U.S., like Vermont, Utah, and Washington, for example, had COVID death rates similar to Denmark and Switzerland, which were and Germany, which were least affected by the pandemic, while other states in the U.S., like Mississippi, Arizona, and West Virginia, had death rates more than three times higher, Utah, Vermont, and Washington, and were akin to the most affected countries of Russia, Bulgaria, and Peru. So obviously, the United States did not have a single or unilateral experience with COVID. And these 58 authors ask, why was that the case? And so what they what they do is they frame their many, many part analysis into five core questions. They ask about these five issues and how were they associated with COVID infection and mortality on the state level. Their first series of questions focused on inequities and inequalities, social, racial, and economic inequities by state. How were those factors related to COVID infection and mortality? They next turn to healthcare systems and public health capacity at the state level. They then focused on politics, looking at the political affiliation of the governor of the state and the proportions of residents voting Democratic and Republican in the 2020 presidential election. So this was a metric of political affiliation and also partisanship. Then they turned to policy issues and they asked whether policy mandates such as mask mandates, vaccination mandates of state employees, shutdowns across businesses and schools, for example, were these associated with better COVID outcomes or worse outcomes. And then they looked at the association between COVID infections and educational and economic Outcomes. The educational outcomes were reading and math scores in fourth grade, for example. So they had these kind of five key issues, social, racial, economic inequity, healthcare systems, politics, policy mandates, and then this issue of whether or not there was an association between COVID infections and some of these educational and economic outcomes on the state level. Their study period ran from January 1st, 2020, so a couple months before the pandemic, to July 30th, 2022, and they were using an ecological study design looking at data collected on the state level. As I said, they were drawing on vast quantities of data, most of it which was publicly available, to answer these questions. They estimated daily COVID deaths for all states using data extracted from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation Modeling Database, and they, they noted that these data were adjusted for underreporting, which varied on the state level. So it was, it was more of a modeled mortality endpoint. And using this daily data, they also calculated the cumulative death rate over their study period. They then used indirect age standardization to adjust each state's cumulative death rate to reflect the national age distribution. And then they did a couple of interesting things. In thinking about comorbidities, the authors noticed that prevalence of various COVID-related comorbidities would vary by state. And so they used principal components analysis to develop a single metric of comorbidities. And then they used that metric, the first component in their PCA analysis, as a covariate in later regression models as a metric adjusting for 
confounding for comorbidities across their later analyses. And so what they were looking for, they were saying, what is the cause, what is responsible for remaining variation in COVID infection and dates after adjusting for this package of comorbidities and adjusting for the age distribution of a specific state? So some of the variables that they focused on, just to give you a flavor for some of these variables across their five topic areas. So in the social, racial, economic inequity factors, they were looking at poverty rates, level of income inequality, something they were using the Gini coefficient, mean years of education, race and ethnicity, access to paid sick leave or family leave. They also looked at these metrics of trust, which someone noted in the media report in terms of interpersonal trust and also trust in institutions. For healthcare access, they were looking at an index that I think is created by IHME to reflect healthcare access in the state, number of doctors and healthcare providers per capita, number of public health spending per capita, the percent without insurance. For partisanship, as I mentioned, they looked at the political affiliation of the governor at the time and also the proportions of the state population voting Republican or Democratic in the 2020 election. For policy issues, they looked at closures of bars and restaurants, masking requirements, vaccination mandates, stay-at-home orders. They also looked at some interesting population behaviors on the daily level, kind of like mobility using GPS data. Estimates of mask usage in addition to mandates from, a, they called it the premise study, that estimated mask usage, vaccine coverage on a daily basis. And so what they did is they regressed each of these, each of their standardized outcomes, the death and the infection rate, with this PCA comorbidity variable. And then each of these other independent variables separately. And they did that because many of their factors are correlated. So they did a series of independent Regressions, looking at probably 100 predictor variables in conjunction with the age standardized death or infection outcome data and the PCA comorbidity estimate. What did they find after doing this, this bulk of analyses? They started off by in a, in a descriptive way showing that the state that had the lowest standardized COVID death rate was Hawaii. And the highest was Arizona. They provided some cool figures. I saw they had lots of cool figures, I thought. They did. And they had some nice color-coded figures showing how the relative death rate varied if you standardized or didn't standardize. But it kind of ran from Hawaii to Arizona in their standardized assessment. They found that racial and economic inequality and political partisanship at the end of the day were the variables that were most strongly associated with COVID mortality. Higher rates of poverty, lower rates of education, and the greater proportion of people identifying as Black or Hispanic were also associated with the highest cumulative death rates by state. Higher interpersonal trust, as measured across a number of their different metrics, were associated with lower COVID risk. Interestingly, greater public spending on public health was not associated with reduced COVID risk on the state level, but access to quality care was associated with reduced risk. And there were some interesting distinctions by political orientation of the state that we could potentially talk about. The political affiliation of the state governor was not associated with the COVID death risk, but higher proportion of voters voting Republican in the 2020 election was associated with higher COVID death rates by state. Some protective mandates, including mask use and vaccination, were associated with lower death rates, but they found that the state GDP was not associated with death or infection. The results about economic and unemployment were a little bit more mixed. So state GDP was not associated with death or infection rate, 
but states with greater unemployment were associated with increased infection rate but not mortality rate. A little bit of some nuance. And some of their package of policy mandates were associated with reduced scores in math but not reading at the fourth grade level. So in conclusion, in conclusion, in conclusion, conclusion. what they're concluding is that the poor performance and this was an elaborate discussion section. The poor performance of the U.S. during the pandemic is the result of what they're calling a syndemic centered around the combination of race and politics with between state variation driven in many ways by inequality and by political orientation. Okay, can we just take a moment Oof. to applaud that? Yeah, that, was, that was impressive. That's a, that was a, that's a really complicated study. It's a really study. complicated article. So yeah. being able to boil that down into a summary like that was really impressive. Thank you. There is so much going on here, and I think there's a ton for us to talk about. Chris, you wanna you wanna start us off? What's, what, yeah, what are you I, thinking? I, I actually sort of struggled with where to begin because there's there are so many interesting pieces to this. Starting with what the heck is going on with Hawaii? Like <laughs> this in every analysis they did, Hawaii is this extraordinary outlier in terms of the lowest, you know, health impacts. But also in in these sort of scatter graphs where they're they're looking at these different relationships, Hawaii is always off in its own corner. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be its own thing, and everyone else sort of clusters in a big kind of cloud. But Hawaii stands alone, and I'm trying to figure out like what is so different about Hawaii. I, I don't know the answer, but it just it just sort of stood out that HI on those graphs seems right. to sit alone in a corner by itself each time. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to make of, of a lot of those things. I mean, Hawaii does seem to me unique. Kind of a different place. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it is an Island way out in the Pacific. I mean, there's just, it was just different. It, it, I mean, it just had right. different things going on, but I, I hear you. Maybe being out of doors all the time because the weather is perfect, you know, that goes a long Could way. Certainly, I mean, they, they also uh, would, I think, would suggest here that Hawaii is a, a fairly young state. And I struggle with how to interpret these, but I believe has a positive comorbidity profile. So, so less Co- co- and, the, co- and I think disease. they had very high vaccine uptake and very high mask right. uh, utilization. So. Yeah, so those certainly could be contributing. But I also think, you know, you, they are uniquely poised. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, talking about New Zealand's response and saying, why didn't the mm-hmm. U.S. do the same? I mean, I wish we had done some things that New Zealand has done, but we couldn't, you know, completely isolate the United States the way New Zealand did. So. I think that one's a little different. So the, the you know, the, the one thing I'll, I will sort of say about the methodology is that this is all, and you, you said this earlier, this is an ecological analysis. And so all of these things are, are, are proxies for stuff that we can't quite measure to a more or lesser degree. And, and we don't really know to what more or lesser degree we do know that a lot of these variables were highly correlated and hence they use this principal components analysis, but it makes it very difficult to sort of parse what happened. And on top of that, they are presenting these outcomes as sort of the aggregate over a several year period. And we know of course that things were tremendously in flux and behavior was changing rapidly and there were vaccines and there weren't vaccines. So there was a lot of stuff going on that kind of gets averaged out of this, but there were, there were a couple results that I thought that kind of caught my eye. One was on the policy side. And I don't know if you were, you know, interested in this as, as I was, this issue of the, the relative impotence of mask mandates mm-hmm. in terms of COVID uh, infection rates or COVID uh, mortality. And in fact, in both cases, the, the point estimates for these, you know, if a state did or did not have a, a mask mandate was very close to there being no association at all. 
Whereas the, the, the actual rate of mask use, which is different from what the policy is, had a, had a fairly profound effect on reducing the impact of, infe- on, you know, particularly on COVID uh, infection rates. And to a, you know, a possible degree, a mask use, though it wasn't uh, a mortality, though it wasn't statistically significant. And of course, vaccine coverage, uh, the results there were, were really unambiguous. That was the strongest, most consistent protective results. More vaccines. Um, vaccines fewer, apparently stop you dying deaths. of COVID, which which I think is um, not really uh, a question uh, that needs to be proven again and again. I think we can all just say that, yes, here it is again. But I am interested in your in your thoughts about the, the mask mandate versus mask efficacy thing in light of the meta-analysis we did on the last episode where it seemed that, you know, in research settings, it was hard to demonstrate a benefit of masks as well, at least for previous respiratory illnesses other than COVID. Well, so, so let me, let's take that on, but in order to do that, can we back up for a second? Because I think there's a bigger issue. You sort of hinted at it in the beginning about the ecologic nature of this data and whether or not we really believe we can actually get at causal effects here. I mean, ecologic data, meaning we're not, we're not talking about individual level data where we can assess does wearing a mask or being vaccinated protect the individual. It's do more masks or more vaccinations correlate with states with fewer infections or fewer, fewer deaths. And while it, it seems logical that if there's a relationship there, it must be therefore at the individual level, we know that differences in confounding patterns can also explain some of those differences. They say in the beginning, notice they, they refer to this as an exploratory analysis. Hmm. So what's coming next? If this is an exploratory mm-hmm. analysis, then by definition, we're not getting at causation, right? I mean, they specifically say causation. Mm-hmm. Then they say things like, if Oklahoma had implemented the policies of California, they would have had X percent fewer infections and death. That seems to have you a different nuance. You cannot make right. that statement. That's a counterfactual. That's a causal statement. Right. If they had done this, this would have happened, implies the estimates we're getting here are causal. So I feel like this is a study that really can't get at causation. I mean, it can, it can, I don't mean to imply you can't get anything out of this, but it's, it's harder to get at causation. They nod to the fact that you can't get at causation. Then they proceed to, and then it's not just that one example. There are lots of cases where the language here makes it clear that, you know, they they assert causation, or or at least they close they believe it. it's, up it's to very it likely. Very closely, yeah. So when you get into questions of you know the specifics around the policy, I mean, I don't I don't know what to conclude exactly, other than I have some skepticism about whether or not we're really looking at pure causation. In other words, I think there's causation in there. But I also think, you know, it's it's very difficult to figure out exactly what the comparison is we're making here. Because if we say, you know, states with with more masks have lower infection rates or lower death rates, you might you might infer from that 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 led, you know, one caused the other. But we also know that mask mandates didn't, you know, part of the reason mask mandates didn't work well was because a lot of people who were going to mask or be susceptible to the effect of a masking mandate we're going to mask whether or not there was a mask mandate. Right. And conversely, a lot of people were never going to do it no matter what you tell them. Exactly. So, so when you yeah. compare across, you're comparing different states with different masking rates. And different right. cultures it's behind It's not them. exactly what would happen within the state if you know they, they had or didn't have the mandate. So it's, it's complicated. There's another place where this comes into play, which is 
you know, they look at a number of these interventions and say they had an, they had an impact on infections, but no impact on mortality. Logically, there's something wrong there, right? The only way you could not have an impact on infections but have an impact on mortality or let's say vice versa is if you've got more, vac- let's say, more vaccinations and therefore, you know, you're sort of having a – you're having a more, you know, the same amount of infections but, the, but in, the fewer consequences fewer of those deaths, are, right? Right. Which, which is plausible. Absolutely right. plausible. But one is contingent on the other. In other words, they separate out infections and deaths here when, in fact, one is contingent on the other. So the comparison is across states with different infection rates, not within a state saying if this state had lowered its infection rate, what would be the impact on mortality given their vaccination rate? So it's, you know, these are complicated questions. They've got impressive data, although I do question the quality of some of the data, but Generally speaking, they have lots of data, really interesting stuff. I just don't know exactly what to make of it. There was so much to like here. Yep. And I f- in terms of just the the audacity of doing this analysis and the boldness of saying we're going to try to look across all of these different domains and collect all this data and work with this huge group of collaborators. The part that I stumbled on was exactly what you're saying, where they would say, if a different state implemented this package of interventions, this would have been the reduction in the death rate or the infection rate. The challenge there to me was the issue of diversity, of mm-hmm. of social, economic, racial, ethnic diversity. And the states that had the lower death rates are states in the United States that were less diverse. And there is something in that issue, I feel like, that was important here, that they captured. And so they were saying there was something in inequity. There was something in diversity and inequity that was driving something, but it's clearly not causal. <laughs> it's clearly not causal. And they obviously you can't put your finger on what's going on, but it, it speaks to not being able to effectively take a package of interventions from one place and then plant them in another place and expect that they're going to work the same way. Mm-hmm. This, this, this bothered me about this mm-hmm. analysis. So they specifically adjusted these estimates. And th- these adjustments are kind of wild if you look at them, right? I mean, West Virginia goes from being a, a state with with one of the highest death rates to being one of the states with the lowest death rates after you adjust. A striking shift, yeah. Uh, whereas uh, Utah goes from being one of the best to one of the worst, as does Alaska. I mean, there's like- This these was are after you adjust for age. After just for age, age and, and the comorbidity And comorbidities. Yeah. So, th- so those are having a real impact right. on these estimates. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, there is a part of me that wonders how much of this analysis is driven by a few states- Right. Because, you know, when you talk about a lot of these things, I mean, if you, if you believe these data and these results, Florida actually comes off looking better than Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so to say, you know, proportion of the state voting for Trump or vaccine or whatever, uh, you know, that, that doesn't fit this mold. And so you do wonder, is it a few states at the bottom of the distribution and the top of the distribution that are driving these results? But anyway, so they adjust for age. They adjust for comorbidity, saying if Massachusetts had had the age and comorbidity pattern of Florida, or I, don't, I forget what they're using as a standard, but if they were equivalent, then the intervention would have you know this much effect. But we're not going to adjust for differences in racial composition. Because Vermont is never going to become Arizona, right. uh, well, New Mexico. They say because that is not something you can change. But of course, 
it isn't really the racial distribution. It's the immense inequities that we yeah, have right. in the United States. It's the right. it's the racism. It's, uh, you know, all of the components the, the, the of poverty, that. poverty, the crowding. That go the, with yeah. that. And yep. that is something you can do something about. And so I feel like they just sort of, Lost you know, that, ignore right? that as if we would just leave that because that's not something you could do anything about. Of course, that's something you could do something about and something we should do something about. And the yeah. states that had the greater inequities were also the ones that reflected more political polarization. And so they weren't, you know, making a comment as to what's causing the other. But I thought, I mean, that was an interesting component, too, that they were saying a lot of the differences on the state level seem to be driven by these inequities that we see in states that seem to have more diversity. And then there's more inequity. And then there's more case. There's a greater case burden. And there's also greater political polarization. And so I, I liked, I mean, I, I, I've, I was thinking about you, Matt, as I was reading the discussion section, because there was a lot of narrative. <laughs> yep. There was a lot of interpretation and a lot of commentary about what they thought their findings could mean. And I liked it from a narrative writing perspective that they talked about this, they call the syndemic yep. of this intersection between inequality and politics and that that was behind a lot of the differentials in the case burdens and the death burdens that they were seeing, but then didn't go into, they, they kind of didn't take it a little bit. I, I kind of wanted a little bit more of like, the, yeah. like you know, and they, they couldn't go anymore. It was an ecological mm -hmm. study, right? But anyway, I was thinking of you as I was reading the kind of, you know, it was almost like a, a narrative retelling I, of the, the complicated, you know, it was complicated feelings. findings. Well, I agree with the both of you. And I it felt at the end of this, this, this was really five manuscripts uh, yeah, embedded sure. in one. Right. And it maybe would have been better to present them as five separate papers rather than trying to put them all in one. And, and just because it was in the end, it becomes somewhat over overwhelming to try to make sense of this. And it also Still, I, applaud, swamps, yeah. I applaud the amount of work that too. went into this. Yeah. Astonishing. And it was meticulously thought out. And I thought that the, their, their use of the PCA to sort of deal with these covariate structures was, was very shrewd. I was kind of intrigued by the, the trade-off analysis, the, the, the latter part where they're looking at the educational costs associated with the lockdowns as well as the GDP costs. And, and it, it caught my attention, of course, because this is the argument that, that presumed candidate Ron DeSantis has been making about the the, the Florida response right. to COVID, right. that they had a less aggressive lockdown, less, you know, less briefer mandates, later mandates as well. No vaccine mandates, but rather just encouraging. And look how well they did. This is what he, he right. is claiming, that there's a, there was a miracle and that his sort of refusal to, to be cautious was in some way, you know, the, the right decision. And, and on some level, these data support that argument to a degree. And yet at the same time, it does seem that this is more complicated in the same way. I think I'm reluctant to draw cause and effect conclusions for many of these results. I don't want to give you know, Mr. Santos to Santos uh, too much credit for what they did, because I think it's just it, the, 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 the analysis and the data going into it are so noisy. There's so many factors behind each of these stories that we just got to be really careful and say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it is interesting that there was a, a, a huge spectrum of uh, success in terms of how we manage the, the COVID. And that describes our country well as being an enormously diverse and, you know, complicated country with a tremendous degree of inequity. You know, comparing it with Switzerland is not very helpful right. because, the, you know, the, the United States is not a small monolithic country in the center of Europe with a very small population. Yep. You know, 
Could I make one comment on the educational side? I would have, I would have really liked that to have been a separate paper because I felt like some of those findings were really interesting and were just kind of swamped. Like there, you. I thought that even, was the most right. interesting part yeah. of the whole thing was the educational mm-hmm. stuff because yeah. I, I felt like a lot of this stuff. Great to have, you know, another approach to it. Great to have more specific estimates, but we knew most of the things in here, right? I mean, we didn't necessarily know state by state each one of these numbers, but we knew a lot of these factors. But the educational stuff we've been struggling to get good information on. So I thought that was actually the most interesting part. I thought it was really interesting. And also just that, you know, there were declines in reading associated with some of, with, uh, you know, presumably remote schooling. No, associate, no, it was with math, but not with reading. Mm-hmm, was that right. what it was? That's right. And that I kind of wanted, I was like, why only math and not with reading? Like our reading scores more robust to these kind of disruptions. That was the real policy relevant question. Like as a parent, I was like, I want to, I want to, I wanted to dig more into this. And it's very political right now with Ron DeSantis, you know, the question of, you know, the authors were making the comment that educational scores were decreasing in the country prior to the pandemic, that from 2019 to now there's been this, this decline in, in these scores. And so, you know, the issue of whether or not there were more rapid declines in certain states was very, very hard to know. Very hard to know. Very interesting and very policy relevant right now. Very politically relevant. And I would have loved another paper on that. I would too. So let me let me let me go back to them the very beginning because this study opens up by saying something along the lines of this analysis could offer clues as how to respond better to a next pandemic. Does it? Or I mean, is that just something you say as a sort of an intro to a paper, or do they really mean that? Because again, Florida is never going to. I mean, we. It's not like we didn't have a pretty decent idea of what to do. I'm not saying we we knew everything. We certainly, you know, there are there are definitely questions as to whether the trade-off between, you know, a lockdown in terms of prevention of of death versus the subsequent impact on children. So I'm not trying to say that that we knew all the answers. But, you know, we had a pretty good idea of some of the things that we could try as well as how acceptable they would be in various states. And that's not something we're going to be able to change next time, right? I mean, Massachusetts is going to react in a certain way that is more towards the, I'm going to say conservative, but you know what I mean? More, more, more intervention. Florida is going to have less intervention. You know, I mean, that's going to be moderated by what the next pandemic is. Hopefully there is not a next pandemic for a long time, but you know, if it's something more severe, people might react more severely. If it's less severe, people might react less severely. Be clear. I'm not implying this wasn't very severe. I'm just saying could have been even more severe. You know, I don't I don't know that this necessarily is going to tell us what to do. What to I mean, do other than be less polarized, be less I mean, polarized and, and invest more aggressively in the healthcare system, you know, expand Medicaid. Although not although health yeah. spending, healthcare spending did not was not related to yeah, yeah. better outcomes, which yeah. actually I have to admit is not very surprising given that we've certainly known for a long time that within, as a country as a whole, we spend more on healthcare than any other country and get worse outcomes. So yeah. why would it be any surprise that within states very spending more metric. on healthcare gets, you know, doesn't really get you very much? Yeah. I, I, I th- one of my takeaways from this paper was this issue again about inequity and kind of income, racial, yeah. social inequity. And, you know, the implicit idea that reducing inequity was good for health. And, you know, would yeah. be would be good for health. And even if you don't know exactly what are the components of inequity that were driving this, it, we don't know exactly what were those components, but we know that there's all these corollary factors involved with 
inequity that are bad for health. And that's a really complicated area, kind of what do you do to reduce racial and social and economic inequity? But the states that did better were states that had less inequity Mm -hmm. and the states that did worse had more inequity. And so it again, it kind of brings it back to this like just this conversation of disparities and health disparities and kind of how. How do we maneuver in that space and that it's, you know, for the ultimate benefit, but it's very, it's, it's very challenging. If we don't tackle that, yeah. we, we, yeah. we do the exact, we, we have mm-hmm. the same results next time. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it won't be worse next time. Okay. Should we move on? That was a depressing way to end it. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. That's jolly. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our second segment, which is an article that we, a short article from STAT called Strengthen Science by Funding Living Evidence Syntheses by Jordan Dworkin and Julian Elliott. And this article was motivated by a paper which found that disruptive science has been on the decline, that, you know, effectively breakthrough papers, you know, the breakthrough science that's been found in many fields has been declining over time. And they believe that part of that has to do with the fact that there has been this massive expansion in the amount of available information to people, that it's very hard to be aware of everything that's going on, and, you know, that people therefore are incentivized to really only focus on incremental change. I think you could probably combine that with the, you know, incentives around what we consider to be helpful in terms of promotion in in academic circles may also you know, play some role in this. And therefore they promote the idea of living evidence syntheses as something that will help transform this problem. So effectively we're talking about large syntheses of evidence on a particular topic that are, you know, effectively in the public domain that are constantly updated with all the new information so that you have a place to go as a scientist to identify where the missing information is so that you can then fill that gap, but also that you don't have to start from scratch to try and figure out what's known and that you aren't in the situation of cherry picking the information that supports your hypothesis, right? It's all there and it's all summarized. I'm curious what you all think of this idea. I mean, A, I think it's a good idea to have living evidence syntheses, right? I mean, this is obviously a a good point, but could we really have living evidence syntheses on every topic? Probably not. (laughs) So we're going to pick the things that we think are most important. But then how do you curate that? But how do you curate that? Who decides? I mean, who decides we, what's right and what's don't wrong? Don't we in some way have these? I mean, isn't that what the Cochrane reviews, reviews do, do to an extent? I mean, they do don't conferences when we go and argue with each other. They're not the same. They're not the same as what they're proposing. Now, I just want to say they claim this would do the following. Promote transformative science. Tame the burden of knowledge for new researchers. Direct scientists towards critical knowledge gaps. Support evidence-based decisions and policymaking. And create a new opportunity for early career funding. I mean, really, is this the biggest problem? Evidence overload is the reason why we're not having more breakthroughs as opposed to, couldn't it just be like there are fewer breakthroughs possible did, did you know, any, after a while? I, don't know. I, I know I did not. Did either two of you read this paper that set the, set the science, academic world abuzz? About I didn't read the original claiming one. Claiming no. that there's less transformational no, I saw science it when than it was, was before? No. Yeah, no, I saw it when it was going making the rounds, but I didn't actually read it. No. Yeah. Well, we should, we should pull that one and, and maybe consider it in a future episode. Cause I'd, I'd like to know wh- why they believe that is true. Yeah. I, I, Cause I'm not sure I would have thought that was true. It might vary by I, field. I don't know. I don't know. So it does get, vary by field. Yeah. So they, they do actually talk about that. And our field of health research was the, was the least prop was one of the least problematic. So mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say I didn't, I looked up the paper. I didn't read it in detail, but I did scan some of the, the key 
key figures and, you know, healthcare seemed to be one where there were more breakthroughs. And I mean, it sort of fits with what you might expect. I mean, you know, cancer treatment. There's an economic and, model know, it, promoting breakthroughs. Lots of, yeah, sort of these, I mean, the vaccines mm-hmm. for COVID, a huge breakthrough. Whereas in other fields, it it maybe hasn't been as much. But I just don't know that I think this is the impediment Mm-hmm. I have, I was wondering if this was a role for the AI chatbots where, <laughs> like, could you type into chat GPT, tell me all of the evidence to date about the relationship between this exposure and this endpoint, you know, something like that in a way like this is very, very time intensive. That was my concern in reading this. Like this is, these are people curating a huge repository of data on a given topic and, a, you know, and what else could those people be doing? I don't yeah. know. I was wondering if there's some way to automate it. And so feeling like, yes, it's a, it's a valuable exercise, but maybe there's a, this is a role for the chatbot. So, so there have been AI, I don't want to call it chatbots, but AI based programs for meta-analysis. Now mm-hmm. they don't do the meta-analysis. What they effectively mm-hmm. do is curate, well, sorry, the ones that I've seen, there may be others. Don't, finding, they don't, finding studies for you? Right. They help sort of help and you try to them. figure out what you should be reviewing versus what you shouldn't. So you don't have to go through the process of reviewing every single study to figure Amen it out. to that. Yeah. So yeah. there are these. So right. that, I think that technology is being used. I do worry about the idea of asking, you know, a chatbot to synthesize the literature because I'm not totally convinced that I understand what it's doing. Yeah. But Dear my chatbot, understanding please. is it's just mimicking what it thinks you want to hear. I have such high it... hopes for these chatbots. No, no, no I, I think, think they you're will right. get better. Right, I, I right. do. And I think they will get to the point yeah. where maybe they can do that. But right now it feels to me like what they do is just tell you what they what it thinks is the next logical thing right. to what, say in the sentence. If, if yeah. since we're on the, the subject of chatbots, oh I, I, I can't wait to. I, I have to. I have to give you my my anecdote. So I, when I, growing up, I loved this short story writer called H. H. Munro, mm-hmm. who goes by the pen name of Saki. I don't know why. And he, he wrote all sorts of very quirky, weird, nerdy, mostly nerdy short stories. One of them was about this compound called philboid studge, F-I-L-B-O-I-D, studge, S-T-U-D-G-E, a, a totally not made up word. Um, and it was describing this marketing campaign by this company that promoted philboid studge to the mothers of the world to promote the healthy growth of their children. And if they weren't doing it, they were, you know, negligent parents and they made a run on philboid studge and they made tons of money. And of course the stud stuff was like totally horrible and, and like dreadful and had no benefits, but it was, it was like an analogy all about, to things that have actually right, happened. Like Marmite, we could say oh, that there's a contemporary there, example where this there, could happen. Right? There goes a, there goes a Marmite, you know, of our audience. weird uh, you know, compound that has found a niche <laughs> in the world. And of course I'm, I'm a Marmite lover. Anyway, I, I was, uh, I was so curious about chat GPT that I wrote to chat GPT. I went to open AI and I, I said, write me a paragraph about the health effects of philboid studge on the liver. And this is what ChatGPT told me. Philboid studge is a type of processed food that has been linked to some negative health effects on the liver. Studies have shown that consuming large amounts of philboid studge, even in small amounts, can lead to an increase in liver enzymes, as well as an increase in fat deposits in the liver, which can cause fatty liver disease, which I'm sure is true. In addition, an increase in cholesterol, triglycerides, and other fats in the blood can also be linked to consuming too much philboid studge. It is important to note that these negative health effects are avoidable by reducing the amount of philboid studge consumed and eating a balanced diet, which is fascinating 
interested in giving me that Philboid Studge does not actually exist. But thank you, GPT, for coming up with that, that complete fantasy and an entire literature review of papers that did not actually take place. It's the end of the world it as we know it. And I was thinking the same thing, that we fine. are doomed. Because right. it says it without a, without a, a moment's of hesitation know, and, and shame that it's just made it's up this beware. entire literature. Right. I'm deeply worried for the future. Okay, we are, we, we are we, doomed. We, 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 we can't go down that rabbit hole because if we do... We, we're going to have to devote an entire episode to that. Suffice it to say, we all agree. We don't think that living evidence syntheses, we think they're a good thing. We're not they sure are they not are. not going to solve the world's scientific problems. Okay. So with that, let's- Funny and weird. What? What? Wacky and weird. Amusing Wacky and, and weird. Amazing. amazing and amusing. Tricky and trite. Amazing and amusing. And I'm going to go first this time because I somehow, if you remember, managed to forget mine last time. <laughs> so I was interested in this article in PLOS One. It was from 2021. And the title of it was When Research is Me-Search, How Researchers' Motivations to Pursue a Topic Affect Lay People's Trust in Science. <laughs> There's nothing in here that is is going to surprise you. I just thought it was a nice way of, of confirming something that you probably would hypothesize, which is me-search, meaning people who do research on a particular topic because they are affected by it. And does that affect, and we, we can have a conversation about whether or not that affects one's ability to actually be objective to the extent that anyone can really be objective interpreting data. But they were specifically interested in how does it affect other people's in, inferences about whether or not you trust the research. And so what they did was they made up these you know, these sort of evidence summaries on a particular topic. One was around LGBTQ issues and one was around veganism. Hmm. And they would give these summaries, but then they would also include a statement as to whether or not the researcher was directly yeah. part of this community or, in the, or, you know, was a vegan. And then they asked people, quite, you know, they asked questions about whether or not they found the information trustworthy. Hmm. You mean and, like free of bias, trustworthy or, yeah, yeah. Whether or, or accurate. Not the information was was reliable. And because they had randomly allocated the the information on the researcher situation, they could, you know, get a sense for whether or not it affected people's trust. Huh. And like that. interesting experiment. Does it can you guess? Does it affect people's trust? I bet it does. Yeah. The answer is it depends on what you believed oh. beforehand. So if mm. you were supportive of veganism, you thought veganism was important, knowing that the researcher was a vegan enhanced your acceptance of the work. Mm. Whereas if you didn't like veganism or you thought veganism was bad, it had the opposite effect. And mm -hmm. I to me, this this feels really obvious, but I don't know that I've ever seen it proven quite in that way. I'm sure other people have done research on this, but I just thought it was a nice study. And it also made me think, boy, wouldn't it be nice to work in a field where you could do a whole study and learn all this cool stuff just by writing up? I don't mean just by, obviously there's a lot of work and thought that goes into this, but I'm speaking from a budgetary standpoint <laughs> to be able to do studies like this. Oh, it, so it does nice. bring up the question though of like, you know, if you start to disclose things as an author about your own personal life, like where, where do you end? Like, you could say I wrote a paper on, on staph infections and <laughs> do I have to disclose like my son recently had a staph infection or, you know, like, like yeah. how personal do you have to get? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Where I don't do you know. draw the limits? Right. But it's like an interesting parallel with conflict of interest. Like, is it kind of the same as saying I'm writing this article on the effect of cigarette smoking and health and I'm being funded by the cigarette industry and then you view that or, you know, but... If you say you're vegan, does it have the yeah. same yeah. Does impact it, does on a study of veganism? Yeah, I think it's a right, good question. Right. 
All right, Chris, what do you got? Many years ago for one of our amazing, amusing segments, I talked about this uh, book that I was very fond of called Beethoven's Hair. I remember it. Yes, um, I saw, I thought of you. Yeah, I saw, so you saw that article this in the article Times about Beethoven's hair recently. Well, yeah. so there was, a, there was a, an interesting follow-up to this. And so I'll, I, I will just uh, briefly recap that this author, Russell Martin, had done a forensic history of a, a snippet of Beethoven's hair. And then he used this to try to understand why Beethoven had died and to try to understand some of his illnesses in life. And the, the salient findings was that, that Beethoven was very jaundiced and had cirrhosis when he died, and that the hair samples that they had obtained were laden with lead, very, very toxic levels of lead. And so the conclusion of that book was that, that he had died of lead poisoning, and this actually lined up very well with a lot of the symptomatology. And it turns out to be completely wrong. So this is a bit of an erratum that uh, in t- a couple years ago, a German graduate student called Tristan Beg, as part of his PhD, got a hold of eight samples of Beethoven's hair that had been collected by different individuals and uh, sequenced Beethoven. Sequenced? He did a, like a whole genome sequencing of Beethoven. And of course, they could they know that the, these are the all hair like, cells. Yeah, these so are this real was, this was hair part because of this, they can DNA. This was the DNA part of the story them. that was that was fascinating that there were so these eight different samples: the Muller, the Berman, <laughs> the Holmfager, the Moscheles, the Stumpf, the Crumelina Brown, <laughs> the Hiller, and the Kessler. Mm-hmm. And the one that was in in Russell Martin's book was the Hiller sample. Okay, which was allegedly obtained by this guy called Ferdinand Hiller, who was 15 years old and a protege of Beethoven and was there when he died and then transferred it to his son, which went down the generations. But it turned out that when they sequenced the Hiller sample, that not only was it obviously not Beethoven, and it was obviously not Beethoven because it was a woman's hair. Oh, it was a it was an XX chromosome, so this was definitely not Beethoven, and the genetics was that this was an Ashkenazi uh, Jewish woman, wow. who was the and and the wife of the son of Ferdinand had married a Jewish woman in Germany. So it, the the theory is, and they don't they can't prove this is that the hair may have been lost in a fire and re- replaced by a snippet of his wife's hair. Wow. But the but of these other seven, one of them couldn't right. be a sequenced doll because there wasn't enough material there, but the other five had impeccable lineages, sort of uh, curation lineages, so they were very sure that these had you know, they were highly confident these had come from Beethoven originally and then when they sequenced them they were all genetically identical. So in fact they they were from Beethoven. And this is where is very interesting because when they then looked at the the sort of the risk factor data nestled within you know Beethoven's 200 year old genes, they found that he had like a 96 percent propensity for cirrhotic liver disease if if he was exposed to a pathogen. And one of the pathogens they found in the in the hair cells was hepatitis B. You you can find that in hair cells. Well, see, this is the interesting thing about the biology of hepatitis B is that like you know you know how HIV when it enters a cell does this swimming upstream trick and then inserts its genome into the host chromosome yep. as a provirus. Hepatitis B does the same thing, and so the hair cells actually have embedded hepatitis B proviruses in the the chromosomes wow. of the human chromosomes. Okay. And so they were able to show that he had replicative hepatitis B in his some of his hair cells. And so that, you know, obviously raises the question whether he might have had congenital hep B, which would be the main cause of hepatitis B back in, in, in that era. Yeah. Uh, of course, sexual transmission as well. But, but apparently Beethoven's sex life was was not very thrilling. So they they that seems less likely, according 
according to the historians, as opposed to congenital hepatitis B. And the other thing that was sort of interesting about this, or maybe sad, depending how you look at it, is there was a cluster of of von Beethoven folks, families living in Belgium, who, you know, when they would introduce themselves as like, you know, I'm Hilda von Beethoven or whatever (laughs) her name was, people would say, oh, are you related to Ludwig von Beethoven? And she'd say, why, yes, I am. And they'd be like, oh, wow, it turns out none of them were related to Beethoven. Uh, So that was another kind of like, oh, my God, cherished myths falling by by the wayside left and right here. Anyway, I thought it was a fascinating that is fascinating to update the story. I, Very cool. Thanks for I saw that. And then I saw they were also going to try to follow up with that woman whose hair samples had this excessive lead content. What was wrong with her? They were going to try to figure out what happened to her because that seemed like it was not good news for her. Well, you one were... thing we know is that she died. Yeah. So, well, to the best it was. Jess, what do you um, got? I have one. This is this is this is brief, but I thought one of the two of you might pick up on this. Also, this was an article that my father sent to me as an avid reader of the Wall Street Journal. It's about the paper in Science a couple weeks ago about T-Rexes having lips. Oh, I heard about this, but I didn't I didn't get the details. <laughs> T-Rex had lips, new studies suggest. That's, you know, and, yeah, that's good to know, right? changes everything. I know. <laughs> Listen, famed dino and its kin may not have looked as scary as their popular conception, though some experts are skeptical. Apparently, this has been a raging controversy yeah. among scientists who study T-Rex, yeah. whether or not they have lips. And this paper in Science is like the definitive comment, although there's still some pushback that maybe this is not correct. Like obviously that the reason that they did not, you know, there's some conflict. Although the, these authors were concluding that T-Rex did in fact have lips. And like obviously when I think of this, don't you think of like kind of like Betty Boop? Like you're thinking right. of like lipstick. Luscious like, lips. Luscious lips. Right. But yeah. they, they don't mean like luscious lips. They're they're looking at like were the fangs hanging out of T-Rex's mouth or oh. did T-Rex kind of like Fold an in. alligator you know, or did he, you know, I'm saying here, oh. like, like did T-Rex have skin flaps over the lips? So maybe he wasn't always like, Arr. Can I ask why, why would one, first of all, why care would one this? care? And why would one wonder? And how, and how would one know? So, so, how, so the how reason, you, okay. So, yeah. so the reason I think that these paleontologists care is because it can relate to the kind of evolution, you know, the the kind of evolutionary link between these different types of animals. And so there are certain types of lizards now that have lips equivalent, you know, over their over their teeth and others that don't. And they are trying to look at the you know elements of the history of dinosaurs. That's my understanding is that there's something about the evolutionary sequence and could there be any, Hmm. you know, remnant, you know, kind of how are these animals related to animals that are living now? Some that have lips and some that don't have lips, even though in my mind, I still just can't get over this visual of like T-Rex with like big lipstick lips. Yeah, with big (laughs) lipstick lips. I'm with you. Yeah, I know. They they looked in three different ways. And so, you know, like very scientific. They looked at the relationship between skull length and tooth size for living reptiles, like the Co- the Komodo dragon. Do um, Komodos have lips? Apparently, yes. And so they do. And so they were saying that if oh. your teeth, kind of in relation to your skull, was a certain length, then they were covered by lips. And if they were not, then you did not have lips. They also looked at enamel, which was interesting because certain animals like crocodiles, where the teeth are outside of the lips, the enamel weathers really fast. Oh, yeah. And they saw that the enamel did not weather as fast on their teeth samples and then they compared like different skulls 
Komodo dragons have lips. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, this is like a raging topic right now in paleontology that it was very interesting. And apparently even this article published in Science didn't resolve it because they still have people saying, I don't know, there's room for debate on this. And they're, you know, at at the end of this article, which is just that I was reading, which was just kind of a recap of this paper in Science, there was a, there was a, a researcher who said the only way to resolve this would be to find an entire mummy of a T-Rex and then look to see if it actually had lips or not. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's do Couldn't that. We just do like you the, can't, that's like, why do any research if you're we, waiting well, for a mummy? Let's, There's no way to resolve this. Couldn't we do the, the Jurassic Park experiment? Yeah, and, why can't we just right. do that? I know. And clone a dinosaur and I see know. if they got lips? Maybe we should start with Beethoven. We could clone Beethoven. <sighs> Beethoven had lips. We could we do a, a chimera? <laughs> I am not going to go there. I, I just oh, wanted no. to, do, 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 if they do have lips, do they kiss each other? Right, don't you want to know? It's like so romantic. So many questions that we are going to have to leave for another episode. So that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthEx, or you can find us. Are we still tweeting these days? I took out the tweets because we're not we're not tweeting. Oh, but they can school is not tweeting. We can tweet. We can tweet. We can tweet, but the school is not tweeting. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and production, and Mark Takakchi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll download our next episode. Mm-hmm.